First thing I'm going to do is just read the text. Text for tonight is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. <clears throat> but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And I've entitled our message tonight, Members of the Marvelous Light, because we are no longer alone, but we are members of God's family. And it's important that we know that this is our identity so that we may be completely satisfied. My goal is that you would leave with a greater understanding of your identity, that you would leave stunned by how much God loves you, and that you would be motivated to, to boldly live out your identity as a Christian as a member of God's family. And our text tonight was written by St. Peter. It's in the New Testament, and it's addressed, it says, to those chosen, living as aliens of the dispersion. And that is what we are. Peter uses metaphor, so it reads, to those living like aliens. And the alien status is not in reference to earthly delineations. Like, they're actually citizens of one nation, but then they up and move to a different nation, and so they're living as aliens because they belong to the... It's not an earthly delineation. Being an alien is in reference to their character as a Christian. They are aliens of the dispersion because their citizenship is in heaven, and they have been dispersed abroad, living as aliens. And when I think of aliens, I think of the movie Men in Black. Raise your hand if you've seen the movie Men in Black. That's most of you. So here, it should be a picture. Yep, Men in Black. Turns out Chris Rock was an alien. Three people? Are you guys living under a rock? <laughs> <laughs> you just got that's fine that's fine I'm sorry that's not your identity is living under a rock I'm sorry okay um okay okay so the concept the main concept wow you're just now getting it back there I'm like yeah, it's funny oh my goodness okay that took so long Okay, okay. So the basic concept of, of the Men in Black organization, what they would do is they would act as a more modern-day Staten Island. So there's all these aliens in all these worlds or whatever, and then they wanted to come and live on Earth, and so they'd have to kind of 
come through this bottleneck men in black organization where they'd get their shots, their documentation in order to live on earth. They would also receive some sort of disguise so that they could blend in with the earthlings and they would be postmen, they would work in factories, school bus drivers, and all of the sort. And they had to live as aliens, or they had to live as aliens, but blend in with the earthlings. And as soon as these aliens would start to act like aliens, what would the men in black do? Neuralize. Neuralize with a... I'll get to that. But what they would do is they would go and hunt them down and shut them up. And they would try to capture them, to send them home, or sometimes they would just kill them. And then anyone who saw the alien activity would get neuralized. It's when they bring out the things like, oh yeah, what's going on? And you're like, and then they tell you some fancy story about how you didn't see an alien. And so we too are aliens dispersed from heaven, our homeland, living on earth. And our culture is the men in black. They're fine with us living here as long as we don't start to act like aliens, the people of God. But that is exactly who we are. First Peter chapter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession. Our citizenship belongs in heaven. And so what, what does our culture do to prevent us from being who we are. What do they do? They attack our identity. And we will get to how important it is that we know our identity and that we live it out. But first, we're going to look at how the culture attacks our identity. So how do they attack our identity? First, the culture says that we're not God's chosen people. Or the way they would say it is, we're not God's special people. We're just arrogant people. We're just arrogant. And to be clear, we are God's chosen people. That's sort of the theme of the retreat. We're satisfied in our identity as God's special people. So we are God's special people, but we are not God's special people because we're special. We, just like the nation of Israel was, can be very tempted to think that we must be in some way, shape, or form better than others because God chose us. But Deuteronomy 7 says this, The Lord had his heart set on you and chose you, not because you were more numerous than all the peoples. In other words, you're not chosen because you're better than any other person who walks on this planet. In fact, Israel... As the verse goes on, we're the fewest of all the people. You were the least. So our culture gets this wrong. They attack our identity as God's chosen people, as his chosen race, and say we're actually just arrogant for thinking we're better than others. But we know we are not better than anyone else. And we know that all the people on this earth, this very moment, we are all equal. And we are all equally 
unworthy of enjoying union with God. We are not arrogant for identifying as God's chosen race because we understand we aren't special, but that we have been chosen. The second is that the culture says, the second thing the culture says, is that we're not God's royal priesthood, we're just time wasters. And for those who don't know, Israel's royal priesthood was a smaller group of Israelites who would be set aside and had the privilege to go into the presence of God in a special tent, tabernacle, or temple. The priesthood not only had access to the presence of God, but they had access to the knowledge of God. And the type of knowledge in view isn't like we know George Washington. It's like we know our closest friend. So these priests were privileged with access to God, but they also were privileged to function as mediators or a bridge to God for the rest of the nation of Israel. They would take what they know and make it known to the nation of Israel. And God says that when we receive Christ, we receive the same privilege as being a royal priesthood. But our culture says you're wasting your time trying to know God and make him known. I once had a friend who told me that I should stop, that I was wasting my time because I should stop reading my book. And here, let me make sure I get this right. And in his words, do something to advance the human civilization. And I thought that by reading the Bible, that was precisely what I was doing. And if you think about it, me teaching all of you God's word, if this isn't the most ironic thing, I don't know what is. But for those who are wondering, mainly Mitchell, I didn't choose to do ministry vocationally out of spite for my friend. I just, it wasn't out of spite. But I've, I've really had people say, if, if, there, if there is a God, he's not knowable. If, if there is a God, he doesn't make himself known. Why, why does he make himself known? What's the joke? <laughs> what I, we, we missed it. Because <laughs> the story you were telling all us about your grandpa and how uh, he lived 10 extra years out of spite. <laughs> That was personal. That was personal. All right, we're small enough. Very personal. All right, all right, whatever, whatever. All right, all right, let's reel it in. Okay, so people say, if there is a God, he's, he's not knowable. And so you guys are just a bunch of time wasters. And so it's interesting. Just take a look at this. It's like, it, so because of the world's lofty knowledge of God, which they don't believe in, they have decided that we are wasting our time knowing God because of what they know about God. We are not time wasters. We are just living out our true identity as a royal priesthood to know God and to make him known, to be a mediator from God to one another and to the rest of mankind. The culture also says, you're not a holy nation. 
You're just a bunch of hypocrites because you're not pure in every aspect of your life. The moment Christianity sins or when an individual Christian sins, the world rushes to draw attention to and highlight our sin to expose us as the hypocrites we are. Gotcha. But the world is ignorant, and here's why. It's because being a holy nation has two meanings, and they get both of them wrong. The first meaning is that we are made holy. That we have been positionally set apart from sin and for God. Because of, in other words, because of the new position that we have in Christ, we will never experience sin's ultimate penalty. Rather, we experience union with God. Starting now and lasting forever. Because of our positional holiness before God, we can now know without a shadow of a doubt for those in Christ and those in Christ alone that we stand before God in judgment and that we are ruled innocent of evil because we have been credited with the very righteousness of God himself through Jesus Christ. The culture doesn't understand that we are not hypocrites to identify as holy because they have no idea what it means that we have been made holy. The second meaning of us being a holy nation is this. We are not just made holy positionally. We are being made holy through a process called sanctification. Sanctification is God's process through the power of his Holy Spirit where he purges our heart, mind, and soul from all evil by giving us new and better and deeper desire to experience and reflect God's holy character as Trey instructed us this morning. The only way to beat the desire for sin is for God to give us greater desire, sanctification. The culture is ignorant to call us hypocrites for identifying as a holy nation because they don't understand that we are being sanctified into conformity with the image of our holy Savior, the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the risen Savior, our Lord. We are emphatically not hypocrites for identifying as a holy nation with the supreme authority of God he declares to us, you are a holy nation. And it's his final word. C.S. Lewis once said, speaking of the holy people of God, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. We will forever reign with greater holiness and greater splendor than even the sun. And this is who we are being made into. It's a, we are a holy nation. The culture also tells us that we aren't really God's valued possession. You're just weak and scared of accepting that God doesn't really care about you. 
You're not God's valued possession. You're worth practically nothing to God. And they claim this, that we're not valuable to God because he lets us suffer. First off, suffering of any kind was not part of God's original creation. Sin is what corrupted the world through Adam's disobedience. And for any who don't know, Adam was the very first man God created. And suffering is only evidence that the world we live in is corrupted and cut off from experiencing the life we could have if we did belong to God. And so do we suffer? Do you suffer? Yes. We all suffer. And just because we are God's valued possession, as we are, doesn't mean that we will not suffer in this life. In fact, Christ promises you suffering. And not just in general, like the rest of the world. He promises you suffering that comes only because you're a Christian. If they hated him, how much more will they hate us? But some today teach that if you just have enough faith, you won't suffer. If you have enough faith, you'll be healthy and wealthy and avoid suffering. And if you're suffering or poor, you just need more faith. Maybe perhaps to give money. This is a common false teaching, and it's contradicted all throughout the New Testament, including in this very same letter that Peter has written to this church that is currently suffering. 1 Peter 1, he says, You rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though perishable, is refined by fire, may result in the praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though not seeing him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy. Why? Because you're receiving the goal of your faith. It's the salvation of your soul. In other words, you will suffer, and it is for our good if you're in Christ. Because suffering is a megaphone that in God alone we find life. In God alone we find life. And this is eternal life. That we may know God in the one who he sent. And so, we get to experience the reality of God's closeness and the glory of his face shined upon us. And how do we get an opportunity to grow deeper in intimacy with God? It's through suffering. It says... So that through suffering, the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold. The world wants gold. But God said there's something more valuable than gold. It's the proven character of your faith, your trust in the goodness of God. And how can you be tested and refined to trust and know God and his goodness more deeply 
It's through suffering. So we're not worthless to God, as the culture says, because we suffer. In fact, for true believers, suffering is evidence of how much God values his possession. All four of these characteristics accurately represent the identity of a Christian. And we have to remember our true identity as Christians if we, each of you, are going to stand a chance in our culture to walk with Christ for a lifetime. We are surrounded by, by the songs we listen to, the media, the political climate, movies, entertainment, social media, fall, falls under media. And they all... And they all want us to, to stop being the people that we are. And so if, if, you got, if you're going to stand a chance, you have to know your identity as a Christian. It's always under attack. And God doesn't want us to get to the finish line just limping. Like, he doesn't want us to get there limping. He wants us now to have a strong sense of identity. He wants us to have a strong sense of identity so that we don't end up like Thor. There should be a clip. Oh, oh my God! Oh my God, it's so good to see you! Give me a cuddly little rascal. Yeah. So he he doesn't he weird flex weird but not a sin, am I right? No, he he wants us to have a strong sense of identity, so that we don't end up like Thor. You remember what Thor used to be like? The god of thunder. She has a crush on him. Currently, she's... Sorry to call you out. <laughs> the defender of Asgard? The one who wields the hammer? Oh, my, my iPad shut off. Okay. Peter... Peter knows these churches he's writing to are the minority. And he knows that they're under attack. And in their context, Christianity wasn't yet illegal, but it certainly wasn't fashionable, just like the culture we're in. And it's not fashionable in most of the world to be a Christian, and it certainly isn't on American universities. But it, it doesn't really matter what circumstance you find yourself in because you were given this new identity and you were given a new responsibility just as Thor has a responsibility to be a superhero and to be the god of thunder we have been given a, a precious responsibility and if we don't know our identity we won't fulfill our responsibility 
will just limp along. We'll end up like what people refer to as these days. This is what they say, not what I say. Fat Thor. We're just going to end up like Fat Thor. And is that what you want? Is that, is that what you want? No. No. So n- know your identity so that we can fulfill our responsibility. What is our responsibility as the people of God? What is our responsibility? The verse says, to proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. We exist as the people of God to proclaim the praises of God. Excuse me. The praises pertains to the mighty deeds of God. And in this context, it refers to the mightiest deed, the gospel of salvation through Jesus Christ. And this is the message to which we have been given the privilege and responsibility to proclaim. What does it mean to proclaim this message? To proclaim means to make public. It's, it's like a It's like a holy public display of affection with God. It's like God loves PDA. Please don't splice this and meme me, Mitchell again, and and his new twin, Jackson. And so we are to publicly display PDA for God. We are to publicly display our affection for God by declaring his gospel. But sometimes we don't do what we ought to do, and we don't function how we ought to function. We don't fulfill our responsibilities. We don't live out who we truly are. And so what do we need to do? Do we just tighten the boots up and do more for God? No. No, we need to do what Thor did. There should be another clip. But just because he was done loving didn't mean he was done fighting. He teamed up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and set off on some classic Thor adventures. He got in shape, putting in the hard yards, turning pains into gains and never skipping leg day. He went from dad bod to god bod. (laughs) We need to do what Thor did. He remembered who he was. He remembered who he was. And like Thor, we need to shed the weight of anything holding us back by taking a deeper look at who we are, our true identity. So yes, We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. But what this passage wants us to do is to go deeper. So what is the deepest root of our identity? What does all our identity boil down to in its simplest form? All of what we are as Christians boil down in its simplest form. What is it? It's that we are recipients of God's mercy. In other words, we are a people loved by God. We are a people loved by God. First Peter chapter 2, verse 10. Once you were not a people, 
but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And this verse is a quotation from the Old Testament, and it means that for us to take a deeper dive into understanding our true identity as people loved by God, we need to go back and understand the story of Hosea and Gomer. And so flip to Hosea chapter 3. Then the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by her husband, yet is committing adultery. Go and find her, Hosea, just as the Lord loves the sons of Israel. The Lord loves Israel. So Hosea going to his wife, who is in, in prostitution, is just like the Lord loves Israel. And he does love Israel here, but it also prophetically speaks of God's love for the whole world. He says, Hosea, go and find her. And this is like my love for Israel. Though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. Meaning that they, <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> they love raisin cakes, which modern, what's a good modern day equivalent to raisin cakes? That OCPs. OC, OCPs, oatmeal cream pies. But see, <laughs> raisin, it's like, I don't know. It, what it means is that they're turning to the world for love. They're turning to the world for meaning. They're turning to the world for purpose. They're turning to the world for identity. And think about how painful this would have been for Hosea to go out. The process of going to look for your wife who is currently being prostituted. And think about where you go looking for your wife. These aren't the type of neighborhoods that you're supposed to go to. How unclean and unsafe these streets must have been. But there was Hosea looking for his wife, seeking her out. The verse goes on. So I purchased her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethic of barley. Can you just for a moment imagine that transaction? Gomer would not have been treated well as a sex slave. She would have been chained to a post, beat, naked, and sold to the highest bidder. And there Hosea would have seen her, his own wife, and the mother of their three children. And Hosea would have looked at her and may have asked for her because she is his wife. But they must have said they don't care and she has a price. And Hosea paid for her, his own wife, who was already his. He bought her back. And Hosea is a picture of God, and Gomer is a picture of you and I. We are God's creation, and we are already meant to belong to him but 2,000 years ago, God sent his son to purchase back what was already his. And imagine how Gomer must feel, hanging her head because she abandoned him. She abandoned their kids, and she slept with other men. Yet he came and found me, and he bought me back. And then in the passage, Hosea shifts, and he speaks 
prophetically, but it's no longer about himself and his wife Gomer. It's about something greater that would happen in the future. He didn't know that it would happen 750 years in the future, but verse 4 says, For the sons of Israel will live for many days without a king or a leader, without sacrifice or memorial stone, and without an ephod or household idols. So it will be difficult and it will be different. But verse 5, afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. And they will come trembling to the Lord and his goodness in the last days. So there will come a day when a king David will rise up. And these are the last days. And this king David has arrived. And our Hosea has come. Just as Hosea searched for his wife, so Jesus searched for you. And think about the condition you were in when God found you. Not that much different than Gomer. We were in chains. We were naked and we were sinful. We had abandoned our God. But our good and gracious God just said, How much? Only the atoning death of your son can appease the wrath of God to pay the price. And God said, okay. And he sent his son to make us his people. Verse 10. For once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so... Who are we? We're recipients of God's mercy. We belong to God because we are loved by him. So, do you want to be satisfied? Do you want satisfaction to permeate every area of your mind, your heart, and your soul? It's very simple. We must bask in the identity we have received through Christ and Christ alone, that we are people loved by God. As the reality of how much God loves you goes down, so your satisfaction goes up. As the reality of how much God loves you goes down into your soul, the satisfaction of your soul goes up. This is who we are. Last, last part. I just have about a half a page or so, about a page of uh, how do we apply this? They're just bullet. How do we apply this text to our life? Quickly, how do we apply this? If we are a chosen race, we should be the most humble and grateful people on earth because we know that we're nothing, we're not better than anyone else. We're just chosen. We're just chosen. And we should be so grateful. If we are a royal priesthood, we should be grateful for the Reformation. In Catholicism, only a special class of priest held all authority to know God. And so what you knew about God's holy word was limited to what they decided to tell you and based on their interpretation. So be thankful for the Reformation. Martin Luther coined the term the priesthood of all believers, that we are all, in fact, 
the priesthood of God to know him and make him known. Look up an article on the priesthood of all believers. Seek to know God as the priesthood by participating in the church. The church is where you experience Christ and thereby grow. You experience Christ together through baptism and the Lord's Supper, through being a member of a corporate body of Christians who sit under the teaching of Scripture and praise God together. It's how you grow. Seek to know God personally through studying his word, seeking him in prayer, and through seeking counsel with other believers. We should make God known primarily by telling others about the gospel. This isn't just throwing seeds like it's impersonal, like here's the gospel, good luck with that. It's, it's, it's a conversation, it's personal. We're declaring the gospel to people. It wasn't impersonal when God drew you to himself, was it? Mediate God's presence and glory by sharing the gospel and God's word with others. Because we are a, we are a royal priesthood. If we are a holy nation, we should be repentant. What sets us apart as holy is not that we're sinless, as we looked at. It's that we're repentant. Truly repentant. For a holy nation, we should confess sin so that God may purify our souls and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So confess sin. Seek accountability for sin. Ask people to ask you about your sin. Accept and give encouragement to wash over one another with God's word, building one another up, corrected and being correct, correcting and being corrected. Rebuke and be rebuked. Train and be trained in righteousness. Ask God to produce new and greater desires for him over and above sin. This is how we'll be holy. If we are God's possession, that means, what should we do? We, don't belong, we shouldn't belong to the world. We don't celebrate evil. We don't endorse evil. Romans says, do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. If we are God's possession and we belong to him, we should long for heaven and bask in the reality that we will actually lay our eyes on God. Whatever it is that put all these mountains here, you, if you know Christ, you're going to get to look at him. Bask in the reality that we'll get to be with him because we belong to him. And finally, if we have been a recipient of mercy, and it truly means so much to us, doesn't, doesn't that mean that we should pray that others would come to know Christ so that they too can understand how much God loves them? And then shouldn't we do something about it? sharing the gospel. <laughs> and we should be, because we've been recipient of mercy, we should show mercy. Don't be harsh. 
and be quick, be patient, and we should show mercy because God is merciful. It's what transformed us, and it's what transforms the whole world. So my closing thought is we apply the entirety of this text by remembering our identity, that we are members of the marvelous light, a people deeply loved by God. Campus Fellowship is a student organization designed to come alongside local churches to reach college campuses. If you found this encouraging, we invite you to subscribe or follow for more content or go to our website, campusfellowship.com, for other resources. Thanks for listening.